preaching of God's word is in what's been read, Luke 16, particularly verses 1 through 12, the parable of the unjust steward, as we have it before us, and the attendant lessons that Christ pairs with it. So here then, a number of these verses to refocus our thoughts, Luke 16, verse 1, following. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. And the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. Resolve what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And so on through verse 12, as read earlier. We come to this parable, which admittedly has a level of difficulty, because at the surface level, it may appear as if Christ is commending this rather subtle and cleverly devised way of serving oneself. We don't see that, however. We see, in fact, Christ holding forth an example, as it were, taken even from man's selfish interest, which is then to exhort us in a serving cause to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Christ nowhere commends this unjust steward himself. He rather says, Verse 8, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. He's saying there's something for my people to learn even from the unjust actions of unjust men. And he opens that with the two lessons that flow from verse 8 or verse 9 rather through verse 12, as we'll see. But for the sake of making sure we understand a few things, notice the context of the parable. It is that he's speaking unto his disciples. So the same general context is still before us that was introduced in verse 1 of chapter 15. Drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Pharisees and scribes are there having ridiculed, murmured, and so on. He's spoken these three parables against the Pharisees and scribes and also commending the rejoicing over sinners who repent. And now he turns specifically to his disciples, those who not only by profession, but by uh, demonstration are following him. Disciples are those who have submitted themselves unto a master, not just to learn academically, but to learn practically of his masterful understanding. And so he's not giving a word of reproof to the Pharisees here. He's not giving a word of reproof to godless men here. He's giving counsel and direction unto his disciples. And he does so by virtue of this parable. 
And so the parable presents to us two sorts of people, a rich man, a certain rich man, and a steward. This idea is important for the purpose of the parable itself. You and I don't have stewards in our homes. We're not rich. We can think of those who do, perhaps. We have certain areas in St. Louis where we see these large houses, and we know perhaps something of them, that they have this house here and a house in California or in Florida, and they split time between these spots, and so they actually hire people and invest them with authority to make determinations and decisions with their finances and the keeping of their house and other such things. Well, this is not new. It's not as if it's something peculiar to our age. It was something that was in Christ's day, where there were household servants. And these household servants, though under the authority of the master, the rich man in this case, yet were given an authority in the master's name, legally, lawfully, rightly, to carry out certain functions of the household. So you can see this in a picture by virtue of thinking of Joseph and Potiphar, right? So Joseph is a servant to Potiphar in Egypt. And Potiphar actually gives Joseph authority over everything in his house except one thing, as he says, which was Potiphar's wife. Now Joseph had a right to purchase things, to settle differences, to manage the house, to do all of these things. And when he did so, he didn't need to seek permission from his master because it was already given to him. And so it's similar to if we were to say to someone, I need a car, I can spend up to X thousands of dollars, I'm trusting you to go and buy that car, and we furnish them with the finances, and then they go out, and we implicitly trust them. They're going to come back, in accordance to our terms and stipulations, whatever they might be, and in our name, buy and serve us that which we've asked them to do. So it is with this picture of the steward. He's a householder. He's one who has been given authority by the rich man to tend unto these things, so that when he went into social life and performed things, they were actually legally binding not only unto him, but unto his master in whose name he performed it. If we miss that point, we miss a number of the things that fall out here. Now notice, it presents not only a steward, but an unjust steward. And there's this accusation that comes to the rich man, the master, that the steward has wasted his goods. So he, instead of using the authority and the possessions of the master he, for the service to the master, he's used it for his own ease. He settled it upon his own purpose. And notice what the circumstance is, particularly. He says, verse 2, the master does, Thou, steward, mayest be no longer steward. I'm taking it from you. And notice what the steward thinks. He says, verse 3, My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. So it's not been enacted yet. He's merely been told. This is what then explains why he's able to go forward and still settle debts in the, steward, in the master's name. So what's been said is, the master, the rich man, says to the steward, I'm going to remove you from this position of authority. I'm going to take from you this privilege. And so now the steward panics. And he says, oh no, I'm going to lose out on the luxurious life I've known 
I need to do things in order to prepare for that time when I will be no longer steward. So what does he do? He puts off digging, that is manual labor. He says, I cannot do it. He would have been something perhaps of a weak person or not skilled. He's ashamed to beg, which is perhaps, as an aside, something that we could wish more for in our own world. But notice what he resolves to do. He says, when I am put out of the stewardship, I'm resolved to do this, that they may receive me into their houses. So he takes it for certain that he's not going to stand a steward. But with the remaining window of opportunity before him, he diligently gives himself so that in this life, he would have support still after he loses the stewardship. And so what does he do? He calls all his Lord's debtors to him. You notice you have a couple of examples He asks the question, verse 5, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And this debtor says, I owe a hundred measures of oil. And the steward, still bearing authority, says, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. So he halves the debt. So you can think of it this way. If you were under debt in the amount of $10,000, and someone who had authority came and had the right to settle debts, and said, listen, if you write a check for $5,000, your whole debt will be free, clear, and gone. There will be no more. All of us would look at such a thing and say, are you serious? Yeah. Do you really have authority? Yeah. Write the check. It's clear. What would we think about that? Well, we'd be elated. We'd be thankful. And so the steward is thinking not for his master's gain, He's thinking for his gain. Look what I've done for you. And he does it again. Notice he says in verse 7, How much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. Take unto him, and he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. That is 80 measures. Instead of a hundred, give 80 measures of the same. And so what he's doing, notice, is not coming up with an activity that would put him in good standing with his steward. Because he knows he's lost that. He's not going to regain that. His whole purpose is to do that which in the eyes of those whose debts he's settling would so impress them that when he's cast out of the office of steward, they would receive him. They'd say, you are kind to me, therefore I'm now going to be kind to you. This is what causes, of course, a bit of a difficulty in our thoughts. But it's worth noting what the steward says. Notice in verse 8, it says the Lord, that is the steward, not God, but the Lord of this parable, the master, the rich man, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. The word wisely is the word subtly. The idea is it's the same word in the Septuagint that's used to speak of the serpent, which was crafty, right? And so it's not like this is the paragon of moral virtue and wisdom. It's that he put his mind to a task and figured out a navigable way forward to preserve his standing in society. So the Lord's not sitting back and saying, oh, you've done great and excellently. There's actually inbuilt to this parable a sense in which the master is saying, he's cheated me of my money, but he's done so, so cleverly that he gets by and enters upon provision as well. This is what, of course, promotes how we to make sense of this. Well, notice what Christ says. He says, the children of this world 
are in their generation, in their life, in their uh, way, wiser than the children of light. He's saying nothing about the commendation of such wicked transactions. He's saying nothing to commend the unrighteous action. What he's saying is, look what wicked men do to preserve themselves with their handling of, of, of temporal things. And he says, they're wiser in their diligence to preserve a temporal concern than my people are in this world to preserve an eternal concern. So you notice he says, verse 9, I say to you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He's not talking about the world receiving you into their homes. He's using a Hebrew type of analogy or a proverb, proverbial statement where he's saying that your use of things in this world would so bear witness that when you die, you have a testimony that you are a man who is going to heaven. You're to use the mammon, the riches of this world, here called unrighteousness, not in their activity, but rather in their uh, uh, transitory nature, their unstable that you're able to make friends, make diligent use of even the temporal things of this world that give demonstration and display that you handle things prudently, faithfully, wisely as one who is looking to the eternal age. And so notice he then brings this comparison. Verse 10 and following, He that is faithful in that which is least, riches of this world. He that handles his things wisely in this world, also will be faithful in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon and riches of this world, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Here's the point. If you and I think, well, you know, I've trusted in Christ, I'm fine. But we have no earthly display of that in the common experience and expressions of the way we carry ourselves, whether with our finances, with our word, with our activities. What Christ is saying is, you're not really one who trusts in me. Because those who trust in me are faithful, not just in the big things, but in the small things. He's not saying that every disciple will become an investor that is able to handle this and become wealthy and so on. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that we're faithful in the little that God gives us of this world, that we're using it and employing it for good. Just as the unjust steward had a sense, I've got to use everything I can in order to assure myself of a provision after the steward puts me out. The Christian is using all that he can with his eye to heaven. That when we fail, what is it when we fail? Not when it is that our job fails, but when we perish, they may receive you that as your actions may testify of you, that you would be received into everlasting habitations. Let's be clear. There's no way in which Christ is saying your faithfulness in this life earns you heaven. He explicitly denies that. But it's the side of what he says elsewhere that you will be judged according to your works. This isn't an Old Testament teaching. 
This is a biblical, a Christian teaching. When the end comes, he doesn't say, well, unto my sheep I'll say, did you guys profess faith? You know, did you say that you trust in me? And they'll say, yeah, we trust. You know, remember when I prayed this prayer? He says, he'll look to them and say, you did this, you did that. You were faithful here, you were faithful there. Therefore, enter in. He's not saying, as it were, that you've merited. He's showing the fruit of grace. Remember Ephesians 2? For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves It is what? It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But he says, ye are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto what? Does he say, unto a loud and boisterous testimony of faith? No. He says, unto good works. God's grace, when it is active in one's life, gives to them faith and faith lays hold of Christ and Christ's righteousness is the ground of our being declared righteous. This is undeniable in the scriptures. Christ himself frequently sets this forth. We've done this as we've been a couple years in Luke and we've seen Christ say, thy faith hath saved thee. There's no denying that. But what he's now saying is to that often and frequent temptation that comes in among disciples. Well, if I'm saved by faith, then it really doesn't matter if I'm faithful or not in my common actions in this world. And it's interesting, isn't it? Who's before him right now? Publicans and sinners. They've been shown mercy. Now what he's laying upon them is this. Don't think, don't wrongly manipulate the teaching of grace that says then it doesn't matter how you live. Because as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's calling his disciples unto a diligent use of all in this life To be used such as to testify before men and in the presence of God of the reality of God's grace. That's the lesson he's pulling from the unjust steward. That's the force of what he's putting upon us. We'll come to verse 13 when he says, listen, I'm in no way saying you're to make your focus to be riches. What he's saying is you're to be faithful in the least thing of this world. To use it as a steward to the glory of God. There's a big difference between what the unjust steward did and what we as stewards are to do. The unjust steward had a single eye to his gain. We're to have an eye to the Lord's glory, which will be to our gain. That at the time when our lives come to an end, God would receive us unto himself. Now, we're longer by way of introduction, because there's so much going on here. But let us quickly consider how Christian disciples are called to handle the least thing with faithfulness, as is fitting to those who are children of light. Here's the big thing. Your daily word, actions, behavior is to be a single testimony unto men in the presence of God that you truly are changed. 
your words, your actions, your handling of your finances, the use of your time is to be a clear testimony that you belong to God and that heaven is your home. So think of that for a moment as we venture into these things. There should be an ability to look at your life, to look at the use of your time, to look at what you're doing with your privileges in this world, with your finances in this world, with your possessions and resources in this world, that it would be clear these are children of light. And so may I say at the outset, are your neighbors who know you, there are neighbors we don't know, we get that, but the people who know you, are they able to look at your life and say their speech testifies of something heavenly? The way they use their finances testifies of something heavenly. Heavenly. The way they order their home is testifying of something heavenly. That's what Christ is saying. These little things. Here's the difficulty. We like to think, well, I go to church. Well, we should go to church. We need to consider we ought to be more in church than we already are worshiping God. But what we often do is think, I'm doing the big things, therefore everything's fine. But Christ is saying, You have to be doing the little things because the little things display faithfulness. So consider then three things before us. Firstly, the coming loss. Secondly, the coming world. And thirdly, the present call as we process these things together. The coming loss, notice the steward found, was found unjust and thus to be cast out. It's not that we're to be cast out of God's kingdom, but notice how Christ says it in verse 9, when ye fail, when all of you fail. And then he says that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Here's the point. There's an appointed time when all of your temporal experiences will be gone. Your finances will be gone. Your health will be gone. Your life will be gone. You're coming to a point, let's be clear about this, sooner than you or I realize when you will fail. I'm not talking about a moral failure. We're not talking about being caught in something scandalous and failing that way. We're talking about the temporal failure that is common to every man. We need to have this upon our minds. As Christians, we need to reckon with this. We're told, actually, we pray, don't we? We sing this in God's praise. Teach me to number my days. Life is like a vapor. Children, understand this. You aren't guaranteed tomorrow. You aren't even guaranteed to see the stars tonight. You aren't guaranteed to see the moon in the sky above you. You aren't guaranteed any other second than the one you now have. But you know what's true of children is true of us as adults. We live in an age where we think about, okay, what's my 10-year plan? And there's good, of course. We see it in James. You know, the merchant is thinking we're going to go here and there. And James is saying, you should never be making plans. He says, you're to say, if God will, we'll go here and make a profit. But notice, it contextualizes our planning in a different place. We aren't just sort of making a plan. We want to get here financially. Where do I see myself in 15, 20, 30 years? All of that's fine and good. So long as for the Christian, it's acknowledging if God will 
and is seeking God's glory. Well, the point in our day is that we have loads, not only of the world giving counsel about strategic plans, but we have whole industries of purported Christians pushing this, shoving this, making this to be, as it were, the big thing. And they'll acknowledge and they'll say, listen, you know, you might die and all that kind of stuff and whatever. But they're making their living off after this kind of push. Here's the point that Christ would have us realize. Whether you have a great strategic plan, whether you have a job that gives you a rich pension, whether you can retire at 50 years old or 75 years old or whenever, here's the reality facing each of us. You will die. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you have health or not. It doesn't matter any of your other circumstances. Here's something that's common to each of us you're going to perish. This world is going to end. This is a loss that's going to come to each of us. It doesn't mean that we aren't thankful for the temporal things. Quite the opposite. We look at the temporal things God gives us and what do we say? Thank you for your mercy. You've caused the sun to shine another day. You've caused my eyes to see the green grass. You've given my mouth to taste the sweetness of sweet food and given my body health and nourishment. And you've given me another day with my spouse or with my children or the people of God. You've blessed me in temporal ways and we thank you for it. But what Christ is getting at is that will come to an end. It's going to end. Some of you as fathers need to reckon with this. You could be dead tomorrow. What then of your, not just temporal concerns of your wife and children, but what of the spiritual concerns of your wife and children? Obviously, we lay great hope upon this promise that God gives that he will be the God of the orphan and of the widow. But the Lord gives us opportunity now to invest and lay foundations that the Lord would use for future generations as he would cause us to be faithful. We need to reckon with this. We need it, as it were, sealed upon our consciousness that my place in my world will remember me no more. Right now, everyone knows our voice, they know our sight and so on, but there's going to be a time when in this place, no one will know who you were. Maybe there's a record and someone's going through records and sees your name and it'll be as strange to them to read your name as it is for us to read the names that we read last week in Ezra. Those people had life, they had children, they had sickness, they had happiness, they had feasting, they had fasting, they had all of those things, but we don't know anything about them but that their name is there recorded and they did some general things. Your name is going to be like that someday. How many uh, burial plots do we pass, cemeteries, and we look at those headstones. It's astounding, isn't it? You go there and you look and so-and-so, and you look at this birth date, and you see a dash, and you see the next date. And as many have said before, look at that dash. That's their life. It's a dash. We would love to think that our life is like miles long, but is able to be summarized in what we would call just a hyphen, a single dash. That's your life. It's going to end. But some of you are thinking, I'll get this figured out in 10 years' time. Christ is saying you need to be focused on it right now. 
You need to be prudently, wisely considering that your life is to be used for His glory right now. Here's the point. Look at the unjust steward. He's told, you're going to be put out of the stewardship. And that's what activates his diligence. All of a sudden, he comes from his bed of ease and he sits, settles upon a strategy and it drives him with diligence to make preparations. This is Christ's point. You're my disciples. You need to be driven unto diligence. Don't put it off to tomorrow. Don't put it off to next week. We have seasons of life. Young children and parents think, well, my children are young. I'm exhausted. I'll wait till they get older. Only to be greeted with this surprise. They get older. It gets more complicated. And then their children advance and they go out of the house. And there are other things that swoop into their lives. Here's the point. You're never going to have a season that will be suitable for you to sit back and figure it out. Christ is saying this. You right now need to amp it up. You need to focus on this right now because your life is going to fail. You presume it's 30, 40, 50 years down the road, but you don't know that. So your life is to be right now testifying of the grace of God. Don't think in terms of next year. Well, you know, we're halfway through the year. We're coming up on the New Year's time and it's then that I'll sort of focus and so on. Well, surely focus then. But Christ is saying right now. You need to be diligent in the service to my name. Don't put it off. Consider this now. There's a loss coming when all of these things which have been provided to you will be called to an account before the Lord. Well, notice, secondly, the coming world. The steward sought to make preparation for a new life in this world. But Christ is calling us to make preparation for a new life in In the next world, verse 9, that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Here's the point. Christ is not trying to say to us, listen, disciples, you're following me. You need to work it out such that you earn your salvation. He's not saying that at all. He's saying rather, you're children of light. That's what you already are. If you're my disciple, you're a child of light. Therefore, start shining now. Start letting, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, your good works to be shown before the world. Let your light shine so before men that men may see what? Your good works. And give glory to our Father which is in heaven. Your light is to be shining now. That doesn't start tomorrow, brethren. It starts now. That's Christ's point. Your preparations for the world of holy happiness is to begin with a life of holy happiness now. This isn't a call by Christ to say, go out and white knuckle it and put on the frown and grimace through all obedience. No, you're children of light. You've been made new. You're different than the world. You're different than the sin of this world. You're to look then upon the things of this world differently. You're to consider your use of the things of this world differently. You're to strategize differently for different purposes, for different reasons. And if someone were to Pause, grab your arm and say, why are you using things this way? You're going to say, because I've got my eyes set 
on the world to come. You've heard it before when it was that John Payton was going onto the mission field to these, you know, barely clad pagans and cannibals. And someone said to him, listen, if you go there, they're going to eat you. And he says, what does it matter if they eat me or worms of the earth eat me? I'm going to die. It's better that I give my life to the service of God's kingdom. Now, that's not a call for all of us to forsake our home and go off into the, quote, mission field. It's rather a simple point. He was resolved to serve the Lord in this life because he knew what was coming in the life to come. Wives, you need to approach your marriage as a daughter of light, that your mouth, your thoughts, your heart, and your body is used in service to the Lord in serving your husband, in serving the home. And the world will look at you and say, that's different. You know, you're, you're out with women and instead of joining in in the gossip and all the nonsense that goes on, it's proverbial, isn't it? You go into some public place and a group of women sit down and you're already sort of rolling your eyes saying, I know what's going to happen. All this gossip's going to pour out. When Christian women get together, it ought to be entirely different. It ought to be entirely unique. The people sitting down next to you ought to say, those women are different women. Same is true of men. Men, if you're married, you're a husband. All that you are is to be used in the service of God for your wife. And if the Lord has given you children, for them as well. And so when you're out with your friends, it's not all the stupidity and foolishness that characterizes men getting together. There's something unique and different. Why? Because they're sons of light. Their speech is different. Their use of time is different. Oh, they go out to some of the same places, but it's entirely different than the others who are around there. They might go to the park. They might go to a restaurant. They might go to some museum or place of entertainment and whatever else. But there's something shining from them that is entirely different than those who are the children of this world. This is Christ's point, that their lives are so different that when someone were to come up and say, why is it you're different? They would be able to say two things. Well, here's the thing. Christ has saved me and made me a child of light. And I've got my eyes and all of what is in my possession, all of the time, all of the resources, not to make a name for myself, but to boast in the glory of God. Can people look at your life and say, there's one who shines the light of Christ. There's one who is unique compared to the rest of this world. If you work, can your co-workers say that? Can they say, you know what? Not only are they free from blasphemous words, taking the name of the Lord in vain, and from those soft sort of forms that likewise skirt around the issue, but their whole lives testify of something different. You know, here I am. I've made fun of those people. And I've po- pointed at them and sort of chided them as holier than thou and whatever else. And yet when I was in my necessity, who was it that showed up to help me? It was the one against whom I had spoken. The world should be able to say stuff like that about you. Circumstances are going to be different. But then when it is that such is done, the reasoning is because here it is. 
I have my citizenship in heaven. I have my sight set on heaven. My hope isn't in this world. I don't gain by this. I don't benefit by this. I'm not looking to amass wealth for myself. I'm looking rather to invest all that I have, my time, my strength, my energy, my resources, all that I have for the good of God because I've got my eyes set upon heaven. Notice we don't have time to go into the subsequent passage when Christ speaks of the certain rich man and Lazarus. But the certain rich man is one who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And what is it that he's told? He says, listen, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. And the rich man used all the good things for one sole purpose, for himself. Here we're being called to use all that we have for the good and advance of God's kingdom and others. There are brothers and sisters in this congregation who have not so much as received a phone call from another brother or sister in this congregation to check in and to ask, how are you doing? That ought to be strictly forbidden. More than that, it ought to be the exact opposite. That we are so concerned about the good and advance of others that we're making efforts to reach out and say, brother, how are you? What can I do for you? Sister, where's your struggle? I know this is going on. How can I pray for you? And not just in the sort of passing moments when we're gathered here, that needs to be done. But throughout the week, we ought to be thinking not just about ourselves. This is the point. The world has so much told us that all that matters is our little domain. Make sure you're caring for yourself. And if we live that way, we start to adopt the excuses that the world uses. I've got too much on my plate. Let's make something clear. You don't exist for yourself. You exist for God and for others. We need to invest in one another. And when the world says, but you've got so much going on, how can you do this? I'm doing this because God has made me a child of light to serve to His glory and the good of others. The coming world motivates us. It causes our hands to let go of this firm cleaving to the resources of this life. And it says, I don't even have my grip on it. It's held with a hand opened. To say, Lord, where would you direct it for others? Is my brother in need? You've given me something, I'll give to them. Is my sister in need? You've given me something, I'll give to them. Someone says, I don't have much money. Do you have prayer time? Do you have the ability to go over and make a cup of coffee or sit down with some tea or to bring a muffin or whatever else to say, listen, here's some activity. Because what Christ is getting at is the coming world comes with a present call. So thirdly, consider this present call. The lessons that flow are primarily two. First, the hope of heaven should touch our daily lives. This is Christ's point when he's speaking about being faithful in that which is least. Is faithful also in that which is which is, is much. And being faithful in unrighteous mammon and riches of this world or possessions of this world, we'll be faithful in other things. But if we're not faithful in these earthly temporal things, 
It's actually a witness against us that we aren't, whatever we wish to say, whatever we wish to think of ourselves, we aren't actually faithful in the greater things. Here's the point. When it is that one is faithful in the great things, they're faithful in the little things. They use their temporal possessions for the advance of Christ's kingdom. Their first thought isn't, well, if I handle this well, I'll be able to get a little bit more and I'll be able to do a bit more. And what we mean by that is this vacation, that vacation, this uh, purchase, that purchase, and so on. It's not that we don't think at all about those things, but it's not first. It's not primary. What's first is what God has given to me in this world as a steward of it and as a child of light, I'm looking for ways that I can employ it for the good of my brothers and sisters and for the advance of the preaching of the gospel elsewhere. Here's the question to consider. Has the hope of heaven transformed your use of temporal things? Has the hope of heaven transformed your use of your time, of your finances, of your words, of your activities? Has the hope of heaven hit you, children? Children need energy and energetic activities. This is undeniable. But is it impacting you so that your first thought isn't, you know what, I wish I had time to watch this program, to look at this video, to do that or the other thing. I want to know, Lord, how you would have me serve. I want to know what promises are to me that I can trust and believe. That's when we know God is at work in the little ones of our congregation. They're less concerned about, you know, I want to go here, do that, play this, play that. Oh, they have those concerns. They have those interests. But there's a sincerity as they look around and say, how can I serve? How can I help? How can the Lord cause me to serve? Well, I don't have much. Remember that little boy who had just a handful of fish and bread. And what does he do? He brings it to the Lord who so owns a blessing upon what the boy provided that he uses it for spectacular things in his kingdom. It's not in the amount that we have. It's rather in how we employ it unto Christ for his blessing. What's true of children is to be true of young people and adults that we have this expectation of the everlasting habitations. We have this expectation of entering into heaven. And so our grip upon this world is lessened and loosened so that we're actually pushing it into the service of Christ. This is a feature of discipleship that Christ is saying is not like level 501, This is rather level 101. This is basic, rudimentary. This is fundamental to being a disciple. He's saying to his disciples, he's not calling his apostles, his special forces and saying, okay, you know, let's get into the more advanced things. He's teaching publicly, even, think of this, to new initiates, publicans and sinners who have come perhaps for the first time to sit at the feet of Christ. And he's saying, you need to so deny yourself in the light of what you are by my grace, in the light of what heaven is for you, that your whole existence now is managing things in the eternal interest of your God. That's 
our present call. So the hope of heaven touches our daily lives. We don't think merely in terms of, well, what will this mean for me financially five years, ten years down the road? We think in terms of what will this mean for the kingdom five years, ten years, a hundred years, a thousand years down the road. I may not be a preacher, but can I help support one who will preach and their preaching will mean everlasting impact. These are the kinds of things we think through. We don't think about, well, I'm at this kind of house, so I want to get to that kind of house, so how am I going to manage this kind of thing? We think in terms of, how am I going to use what God has given me for the biggest impact on His kingdom as He would bless it? Because we know we might be a millionaire, and say, I'll just live upon $50,000 a year and dedicate $950,000 to spiritual and Christ's kingdom's interests. And yet, if the Lord doesn't bless it, it means nothing. But we're called to be faithful that the hope of heaven is impacting us, that our thought, our orientation, our strategizing is more about the eternal interest, the everlasting interest. That's our focus. Parents, when you look at your children, what is it that most burdens you about them? Here's what the world is most burdened by. What am I going to do to ensure that they have finances enough, education enough to get a good job, to live comfortably, and to carry on in life. Now, the Bible commends, and indeed commands, that we lay up for our children. But that's secondary. It's primary that we're thinking in terms of what investment am I going to make for their spiritual upbringing? So think of this for a moment. Parents make money in this world and they think, now I can go buy my children an entertainment system so that they can be happy and play video games. And then those same parents will come, if they're in a church, their pastor and say, I don't get it. I can't get my children to sit down for family worship. They've invested wrongly. They've not invested in the teaching of their children spiritual lessons to prize the word of God. And so you have people today, I was guilty of this as a youth, you know, whose parents will invest all sorts of money to get involved in sports and they'll go to this trip and they'll go to that trip and they'll miss this and that and the other thing and they'll set up this party and set up that party. But when you think about coming to church, it's like, well, you know, we're sort of tired and we're a little bit burdened and it's been a long week and, you know, I've been really dragging and so on. But you know, if it were a Saturday and it was a special activity, they'd be like, oh, I'm dragging, but let's go. The interest has become wrong. The focus is off. But when parents become understanding of the high privilege that is afforded to them to be disciples of the living God, and they have a flood of delight upon heaven, now their whole interest is, what am I going to use my financial resources for for their spiritual care as well as their temporal care? How am I going to invest in them? What efforts am I going to make for them? Yes, we're going to have birthday parties and care for them in temporal things as well. And we're going to think about, well, they're showing promise of education. And so, you know, we need to think through financially, you know, matters of 
resourcing their education or you know what these people are skilled with their uh, technological ability and so you know what kind of school might be suitable for them or what kind of internship might be suitable for them we're we're definitely going to think of that but here's the point we're not thinking of it for their lives to be comfortable we're thinking of it so that they would serve the lord that's the goal Your investment spiritually and temporally in your children is to orient them to the service of God. And so when families start to say, well, you know, church is second, family's first, you've got it wrong. When they say worship, well, that's important, but it's more of an enhancement. You know, what's important is family worship and other things. You've got it wrong. That's the wrong priority. The public ordinances of God are the preeminent means that God uses to advance His kingdom in His people. And when we sit back from the public ordinances, what we are necessarily saying is, I think I've got a better angle on it than God does. When we prioritize other things than what God prioritizes, we're not managing even the least things faithfully. We have to manage the least things faithfully. You know what? We're going to go to bed earlier on Saturdays. You know what? We're going to eat a decent meal together. Why? Well, because these least things are actually going to serve you for the biggest things. You know, I'm not going to go out tonight with my friends because I need to invest in my wife. She's been struggling. She's been straining. She's been in a lot of pain and difficulty or the household is just in a difficult position. So no, you know what? I love to hang out with my friends. I love to talk on the phone, but my wife needs my investment. And so we're using our time for the advance of Christ's kingdom. You know what? It'd be easy for me to just sit down on the couch, turn on the television and veg out for a season than it would be for me to afflict my soul, stir up God's grace, and sit down before the throne of grace and pray. You want to know why we have such weak evidence of God's grace in our day? It's because we are unfaithful in the least things. That's why. We look at our age and we say, you've got to be kidding me. This is Christianity? And it's this puny, this weak specimen. People can't so much as have a spiritual conversation today. But if you went to someone, a Christian friend, and said, Hey, did you see the Cardinals game? Oh, yeah, let me tell you about this. Hey, did you watch this program? Yeah, I saw it. Where do you think they're going to go? What do you think they're going to do? Hey, did you pay attention to this thing in the world? Yeah, and the conversation would roll naturally on and on. But if you said a question like this, Hey, has the Lord been feeding you today? Oh yeah, you know, He gave me this and it fades away and it quickly turns to something else. That's a symptom of not being faithful in lesser things. That's the evidence that we are unfaithful in lesser things. We want our children to thrive in God's grace and yet we're more interested in providing them earthly comforts then we are spiritual provision. And so when we come to our children and say, hey, you know, tell me what you learned from the sermon. And they say, oh, was there a sermon? You know, I don't know. 
that's actually not so much on them as it is on us and parents to teach them how to listen to sermons and to cultivate it. And the best will talk of this, that though they prime the pump, though they're helping them with tools, that still their children will come and say, you know, I don't know. But the parent is faithful to shepherd them through those seasons because they've got their eyes on 20 years down the road, not for their college education, but for their spiritual service to the Lord. And they're saying, listen, if my child was going to be a mathematician when they're 30 years old, I'm going to bear what they're struggling through learning the addition and subtraction and multiplication facts because they need to learn those things. And it's a struggle. But I've got my mind on something 20 years down the road. What is it you want your children to be 20, 30 years down the road? You know what it demands? We're going to sit down and memorize this passage. We're going to sit down and talk about the sermon. But mom, I don't want to do that. This is boring. Okay, well, you don't have to learn math either. You don't have to eat your vegetables. You don't have to do any of that because, well, that's boring and it's unhelpful. You see what we're getting at? Christ is saying when we have our eyes fixed on heaven... The little things are ordered for the big things. The little things are ordered for the advance of the big things. In other words, our daily lives testify of our hope of heaven. It's not our daily lives testifying of purchasing heaven. It's our daily lives testifying of our confidence of heaven. It's looking forward to heaven. And with our eyes on that, we're saying this. This is what we're doing. You can imagine when you're in a car and your children are starting to pay attention to this street and that street. And they say, you know, why are we not turning right here? We've turned right here before. Why are we going left here? And you can say, well, we've got a different destination. We're going somewhere. And to get there, we have to take this road. The same is true in our eternal destination. Mom and Dad, you know, when we were at the park, these kids were saying these things and doing those things. And, you know, they play soccer on the Lord's Day. They play football on the Lord's Day. They play baseball on the Lord's Day. They've invited me to do that. You know, why don't we do that? And a parent can pull their child along and say, here's the reason. We've got a different destination. We've got our eyes on heaven. We've got our eyes on the Lord. A husband comes and thinks through his finances and presents to his wife the budget and they work together and by God's grace they're working through it and when the question comes up why are we using our finances this way they both know because we've got a different destination. That's the focus. We're to learn from the focus of the unjust steward not to be just clever and subtle with our finances but rather to say, we've got a different destination, therefore we order it accordingly. Brethren, this only comes not as we make ourselves children of light, but as we are made children of light. You know what the fundamental need is? That God would so make us to be His children and speak peace to us by His grace that we are His children, that of the confidence of His love and mercy and covenant, we then, trusting in the Lord, as we sing in Psalm 37, may do good. Do you see that? The connection? Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and order it this way. Trust in the Lord and manage the small things with faithfulness. We need God's grace. Let us seek it of Him that we then would be faithful in the least 
and demonstrate our faithfulness in the best. Would you stand with me then for prayer?